0: Hi, it's Jesse here. This episode is a re-release of a previously recorded episode. We thought this was too good to let it sit with the sound quality that we got on our first production, so we've remastered this one, and hopefully it can be one for the ages. So please enjoy and share with your friends.
1: Hi, my name's Tori, and I wish I knew more about blood products.
2: Hi, my name is Leticia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work.
0: Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work
1: as in an a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow.
0: I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things.
1: Hello, my name is Liz Crow,
0: and I'm Jesse Spur.
1: And welcome to another episode of Five Things, where we've got something incredibly special for you today. For the first time ever, we're stepping outside of our wonderful, skilled nurses and midwives at the Royal, and we've come to interview Professor Rob Orr, who is the Director of Tactical Research Unit at Bond University, and he's going to talk to us about all things to do with stress. Welcome,
2: Rob.
0: Thanks. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So as per usual in our format, we'd like to get to know your background a little bit, Rob, and how you've ended up in this role that you're in now from where it's where it all started for you. Sure. So um, um
2: I came over from South Africa uh, at the age of 14 when my parents didn't want me to be conscripted into the South African military. And uh, actually, I then decided to join the Australian Army. So I dropped out of high school, joined the Australian Army, And I trained as an infantry soldier. I then qualified as a physical training instructor. And then Army sent me away to become a clinical physiotherapist. So I spent time as a clinical physiotherapist, which led me into human performance. And then from there, I decided, you know, 23 years of running around all over the place. I wanted somewhere to settle down. And lucky, a job at Bond University came up. So I joined the physiotherapy department as an educator and researcher. And then
0: we set up the tactical research unit. Awesome. So what does a day in your life look like? Is that a bit reductionist? Let's say, what does a, a week in your life look like? A week in my life?
2: Um, it depends on the week. Uh, sometimes we're out in the field collecting data with military, law enforcement, or foreign rescue. Sometimes we're just crunching the data, or sometimes we're downstairs teaching for the whole week, teaching the students uh, some of their key clinical physiotherapy skills. So we were
1: really curious to interview you because you actually train police officers and those in the armed forces about how to manage their stress.
2: Yeah, so it's it's more of an um, understanding of what stress is and some of the influences it can have. We need to consider that, particularly with a lot of the research we're doing, as to what influences their performance on the job, particularly in what we call mission-critical teams, where failure is not an option uh, and where when they get things wrong, the, the side effects and the downstream effects can be pretty catastrophic.
1: So with that in mind, can you please tell us what's your number one thing that we need to understand about stress?
2: I think the number one thing about stress is we need to get away from this mindset that stress is bad. Everybody blames stress. It's a beautiful scapegoat. Oh, you know, why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you performing well? Or, you know, why do you feel unhappy? I'm stressed. It seems to be a go-to response. It's also very much a scapegoat. Stress is an important physiological effect uh, on the human body, and it can actually be a beneficial thing to improve performance. However, not only can it be beneficial, it could also be at a level which is tolerable, where it's not actually having a negative effect or a positive effect on your performance, but it's there and it's something you must deal with. Conversely, it can become toxic when it's excessive and it's not managed well. So stress by itself is not necessarily a good or bad thing. It is a natural response. And you need to understand this natural response and best to actually utilize it and lean into it and let it actually optimize your performance.
1: So there's a sweet spot essentially, when it comes to stress.
2: Indeed, there is a sweet spot. I think one of the best ways that it was uh, graphically represented is is known as the inverted U, the Yerkes-Dodson law. Um, And the reason for that is anywhere on this inverted U could determine your levels of stress and therefore your associated performance. And the average individual can be anywhere on that curve depending on what they're doing. And that can change Based on the nature of the day, if you've had a really good day and you've had a good night's sleep and you had a, you've eaten well and you've, you've gone out and done some exercise and everything's going beautiful and you know, blue skies are out, an, an event may not elicit a high amount of stress. However, if you've had a bad night's sleep, you haven't eaten well, you've just got into a fight with your partner, uh, your cat's gone missing, or your dog's gone missing, and there's a lot of other factors influencing you, that exact same task can be the straw that breaks the camel's back and take you over to that tipping point. Unfortunately, the, the U isn't as clean as the U looks like because there's something called catastrophe theory where when, once it gets to a certain point, just deloading some of those stresses can't uh, let you shift backwards smoothly on uh, this curve. L- literally, things collapse. And when it gets to that point, the strategies that need to be put into place are very, very different. It can't just be unloading yourself or unloading somebody else and expecting them to reduce their levels of stress.
1: Great. So can you tell us what's your number two tip for stress?
2: Well, firstly, you need to understand what stress is and how it affects the body and why it can be both good, uh, tolerable, and or bad. So firstly, there's a biological, physiological response to stress, and that is perfectly normal and part of the human body. Uh, It's designed to to keep you alive. Everyone's heard of the freeze, fight, or flight syndrome, and, and that is a physiological effect to help you live in your environment. Obviously, the, the levels of threat now that we live in are very, very different, but the physiological response is still the same. So firstly, things like your heart rate will go up, your mouth will suddenly feel dry, your respiratory rate, your breathing rate will go up. There'll be peripheral narrowing where you'll start to focus in on something uh, that draws your attention, which is normally your, your level, the, the key risk that you associate with your threat. Uh, your body will release a high amount of glucose and glycogen into your system so that your muscles are ready for fight and or flight. And your gross motor skills will be amplified, whereas your fine motor skills will reduce. So what that means is when you get that email that you, from somebody that's going to stress you out, you, know, you can feel your mouth go dry, your heart rate goes up, your respiratory rate goes up, and then you try and type and you're, you're literally punching holes into your keyboard because you're performing gross motor tasks. Um, and that is an example of the new way that stress and uh, has an influence on our physiological response where it's not a direct threat to the human body, but we perceive that as a threat because it is a, in our mind, a threatening email or something we don't want to deal with.
1: So with that point, is stress part of it personality-based? Like do you, does your personality influence the way you experience stress?
2: That's that's a really interesting uh, question because there are some trains of thought that your the nature of your personality is uh, will influence how you respond to stress. So for example, somebody that's very introverted, when you've got a lot more external stimulus, your levels of stress may rise a lot more than somebody who is very extroverted, for example, who likes noise and chaos and energy around them. So a classic uh, example would be in sports. You'll see those, that some athletes who are predominantly more introverted will go and sit down and put noise-canceling headphones and try and, and lock out all the external stimuli because it is creating excessive stress. It is increasing their physiological response to the environment. Conversely, you'll have those that go out and get the crowd involved and get them hyped up and get them clapping and cheering because they need more physiological stress. You can also use this, for example, if you're doing exams. So if you've had a bad night's sleep, you're really tired and you are overstressed and you're worried about your exam, it may be better for you in the morning to have a cup of tea rather than a cup of coffee and excess caffeine conversely, if you're under aroused because you're fatigued and you don't think you've prepared well, you may need that caffeine boost to increase your level of arousal. So you can actually see how you feel in your level of arousal uh, based on the incident at the time and manage that. The worst thing you can do is be overstressed, really wor- worried about something, and then go suck back a couple of red balls because that'll just peek you straight over the edge.
1: Rob, you've got number three is why tasks and environments matter when it comes to stress. What does that
2: mean? Yeah. So, when you look at, firstly, the nature of the task, uh, you you don't become as stressed when you're doing a very, very simple task. So, if I was just writing something down on a piece of paper, that's a a low-stress task. However, I'm trying to write something down and type something with the other hand and talk to somebody. All in an environment under time pressures, the complexity of the skill can be very, very uh, challenging. So, what you can find is if, if you're in a situation where the environment is becoming very, very complex and you're starting to feel stressed, one of your immediate actions, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, is to actually go back to something more simple. So you know what, you've got 20 things going on, you've, you focus on one, you draw that out and say, okay, I'm just going to focus on this task, get this task sorted and then move on. Now the environment is very, very important because that'll also change the complexity, uh, your physiological response to that um, to, to that simple task. So for example one of the tasks that we used to have in the military was actually reloading a magazine by hand with 30 rounds of ammunition as quickly as possible. Now, doing that is is, is a quite easy task. You're putting a bullet into a magazine, pushing it down. However, when you add time pressures and complexity and noise and chaos, you'll find that because you lose those fine motor skills, it becomes very, very difficult to actually perform that task. So not only is it the task, but the context in which the task is being done, the environment, which is very, very important. So if you think about people um, working in a, a theater, uh, a, a medical theater, if they're used to that at theater, they're used to where everything is, they're used to the lighting, uh, they're used to where all the equipment is, they're very comfortable in that environment. That task would, that they're performing would be very different to performing that same task where in a different theater where the lighting's different, the noise is different, they're not sure who's coming in and out, and the total environment is different. In sports, you see this in the home field advantage. So the home field advantage is knowing where the light will be on the field at a certain time, you know, knowing where the, the little bumps in the pitch are, knowing the differences, this, how the noise will travel around the pitch. They give you small little bits of advantage, which decrease your level of stress because you don't have to worry about them. As opposed to playing in a, on a new field with an opposition, you don't know where the, you know, the noises, the lights are, all those other things that add to your uh, cognitive bandwidth, which then increases your level
0: of stress. And I guess where the I guess the perfect storm around this is where there's a novice that's still in a skill acquisition phase that's trying to learn these new skills, and then you've got all of these other environmental enablers or disablers, noises, all those other things. So they haven't got to that point of autonomy in a skill. Something as simple as mixing antibiotics up can be taking up a huge degree of cognitive bandwidth, so there's nothing left for that extraneous sort of load of the environment being different, the lighting being poor. Task switching because of interruptions, those sorts of things.
2: Exactly, and that's where you get to that catastrophizing effect where yeah. it actually gets to a point where everything just shuts down, and a simple task can become so complex that they actually freeze, uh, and it's it's almost like paralysis by analysis. You just you get stuck with so much information coming in that your brain's trying to sort, and you see them start to get jittery, and they literally, as as the saying goes, you know that they lose it, um, which means you, you've got to identify when that's starting to occur and hopefully address it before it hits that break. But if it does hit that break, how you then mitigate that and how you bring um, your, either yourself or the person who's, who's, who's uh, had the effect, how you bring them back into the group and back into the task is going to be very, very different. It can't just be simplifying them or telling them to focus because there's so many other effects going on. You did raise an interesting point about you know skill acquisition. So we're working with a, a state police agency at the moment where they're looking at skill acquisitions under levels of high stress. And what they found is the more stress... Uh, And the more external extraneous cognitive load and demand uh, that there is in the environment, so that could just be noise, it could be light, uh, it could be having a supervisor just watching, as opposed to even a supervisor verbally encouraging you. uh, In other words, yelling at you. Um, They will all affect how you you learn that skill, um, and at what stage you are at that skill development. Because that does become important. You have to be able to form these skills in a highly complex environment. But if you add that complex environment and those stresses too soon in that stage of learning the skill, it actually hinders the learning. Mm.
0: I really like that point in terms of thinking of cognitive load theory around this. And I don't want to go too deep into the weeds with this, but I think there's a a really nice analogy of a coffee cup where there's the intrinsic load of the task that we've got to do. And when we're new, something as simple like we'll carry on the the example of mixing up an IV antibiotic has a relatively high extrinsic load. So that might take a novice's coffee cup to half full just because of the complexity and the load and therefore the stress of that task. Then if you add noise, that's an extraneous or extrinsic load, a stressor that comes in, that might fill that cup up completely to the brim. So we're just able to function, but we're not able to actually reflect and that doesn't actually then compound that skill. So we've removed that cream on the top layer, which is referred to as germane load, that's that learning space still there, the bandwidth to go, there's going to be some normal extraneous load. I'm doing this by even by being watched by someone else who's in the room. There's going to be that. But if we're at that top end all the time, cup's full with extraneous and extrinsic load of the task, we aren't, that's not going to develop us. We're not going to go, actually, how did I do that right this time? What can I improve on next time? We've lost space for that. So even just learning and getting better, it's a really interesting one to going, can we minimize the load? Can we get the environment set up better so that I've got space that each time I do this, I get better at it rather than just keep limping along feeling terrified each time I do it.
2: And that's really important to understand for your senior clinicians uh, and your educators because what you remember and the way you now perceive doing that task is very different to the person living it for the first time. And for you now, that task, you don't even think about it. It's autonomous. You could take 30 seconds to do it. You don't realize how much cognitive bandwidth the novice is expending to do that. So by doing things like telling them to hurry up, what you're doing is you're actually increasing um, more stress than there needs to be. You've got to remember that they're at a different stage of their learning, which has now become autonomous for you.
1: Okay. So I'm really curious about this whole thing of cognitive bandwidth. What does that actually mean and how does it relate to our ability to cope with stress?
2: Well, that's a a really nice question. Cognitive bandwidth uh, is just uh, a way, I guess, of of trying to define that your brain only has so much processing power. Like any CPU, it's got so much processing power. Now, firstly, you realize that you can't multitask. uh, Your brain can't actually multitask. It tasks switches. It switches between one task and another. It switches between different uh, bits of input and then it tries to determine what input it needs to focus on. So when you've got cognitive bandwidth, it means how much space have you got left in your brain to focus on a given task. Now, the more familiar you are with the task, the more talented it is. For example, right now, you don't need to think about breathing. You can do it. You don't need to think about walking when you walk because you've spent a year developing it. So your brain doesn't actually have to allocate a lot of bandwidth, a lot of processing memory to actually performing that skill. However, if you now have to do a task where there's a lot of things demanding attention, you're trying to learn a new skill, which is complex, so you're focusing on that, but there's distracting lights, there's distracting noise, and your brain is constantly switching and trying to take all this information in. It can overload the CPU, your processing power, and that is your cognitive bandwidth, the finite amount of brain space you've got. And I guess an example for this is, and this is a, a bit of a joke we have with our physiotherapy students when we talk about you know, changing motor patterns, is... As I said, you've been walking, most of you, since you know, you're, you're one year old, and you can walk quite comfortably without having to think about it. So, next time you're going for a walk with a friend, this has to, you have to be, it works better if you're a male walking with uh, another, another friend, but you have to be the male who says this because it'll make more sense in a minute. But you're walking along with a friend, and in the middle of a conversation, whilst you're both walking and talking and breathing without using any cognitive bandwidth, turn around and say, and then the doctor told me I was six months pregnant. And because that amount of information is so out of context, the person with you will often stop walking. They'll forget how to walk because they've got to (laughs) align so much cognitive bandwidth to try and process what you've just said because it does not make sense. (laughs) So you can see that is a great example of cognitive bandwidth overload. Mm. Try it, it's a good good trick.
1: (laughs) good trick to try at home. That really makes me also think about um, our patients. So our patients come to us, they're stressed, they're overwhelmed, they're often sick, and then we're trying to give them all of this information. That cognitive bandwidth is why they're probably asking the same questions over and over again because they're so overloaded by a new environment, by being unwell, not getting good rest, maybe not having the sufficient nutrition, et cetera. And then we're giving them so much information, often all at one time.
2: Indeed. Um, and not only so much information, information that is awfully, often new to them. In a, a way, they're not used to listening to information. Uh, particularly, we find it with with new students. Um, that they'll use big, more technical words, you know, rather than saying the chest, they'll say the pectoralis major, or you know, <laughs> uh, you've suffered a subluxation uh, of your acromioclavicular joint, rather than just saying, you know, what you, you popped your shoulder out, you've hurt your shoulder. Something more simple that the person can understand. So that means they're trying to process this information which they don't understand firstly uh, and is absorbing all their cognitive bandwidth. So everything else you're saying, they won't hear because they're too busy trying to figure out what you've just said. Mm. Um, And then how much information and how quickly it's delivered as well. Mm. So rather than giving them time to actually sit down and understand what has just been said, there's the next bit of information, then the next bit of information, then the next bit of information, and it just compiles one on top of the other to the point where they don't actually, it goes in, but it doesn't actually get encoded. They don't understand it. It goes in one ear and out the other as the saying goes.
1: And I think patients and new staff, whatever that role is in the hospital, on the whole, haven't understood. Then someone says, did you understand? They say, yes, of course, because no one wants to look stupid.
2: Indeed. And at that point, they do understand, but they understand the small bit that they were able to process because they spent time processing it. And they didn't actually hear all the rest of it. It just went straight through them. So that's why you can ask them, you know, repeat it back to me. And hopefully enough of their short-term memory will give you something, but you'll find that the major crux of it has been lost. So it's always good to get them to paraphrase back to you to see, well, what did you actually understand? And did you actually hear what I was saying? Um, because we've all had the situation where people only seem to hear what they want to hear Yeah. and they miss all the other bits of the story. And that's often why.
1: But I'm, I'm really picking up on your point where you're saying when it's new information, slow it down. And maybe chunk it up, you know, like mm. you know, say something, pause, give them time to either ask a question, clarify, or take it out, and then say, "You know, now here's here's some more information, or, or are you happy for me to go on?"
2: Yeah, which is why patient history is so important, because when you want to provide this information, you want to provide it in a, in a context that that patient would understand. Um so you need to understand your patient if you want to deliver your message to that patient, and you need to deliver the message in the way that the patient will understand, not the way that you understand it. And we see that in any form of writing. You get uh, any journalist, they don't write to their level of uh, writing. They write to the audience, the level of the audience. And that's what we have to do. We have to educate to the level of the audience and what makes sense to them.
1: Yeah. And if we don't, stress goes up,
2: learning goes down. And frustration goes up on both ends. Yes.
0: And I suppose I'm picking up on it's finding out either translating what our schema for Understanding that information is is there, how does this all fit together or finding out enough about the patient to understand what how we can help them fit that to the schema of their life as well. Indeed. When we're talking about an injury, attaching that to something that's relevant to them in their life, and that takes a bit more time, but the yield's going to probably be in a favourable return because we're not going to have to uh, re- redo the conversation about 10 times.
2: Indeed. And quite often the way they, they'll absorb it the most is if it's in context of, of who they are and what they are.
1: So Rob, I'm really curious, you know, this podcast is aimed at healthcare professionals who've just come, you know, really still in the middle of a pandemic in Australia, we're in the fourth wave. Your fourth point is the effects of long-term stress.
2: Indeed, so I guess I mean everybody knows that it has a negative impact on health. Uh, the hormonal system can, you know, it can actually damage your heart if you're constantly under this fight or flight. Um, we know that there's negative effects, but more so, I'm, I'm looking. That, uh, my way of thinking about this is stuff from Hans sale in the 1950s, where he looked at the, the physiological response of an organism to stress and how that translates over time. So, for example, we'd all heard of the term culture shock, where you go into a new environment. You don't know where anything is. It's not familiar. It all means that your performance is going to be a lot lower because you're too busy trying to take in all that other information, which is now sucking up your cognitive bandwidth. Um, But after you start to get used to your environment, you start to go into what they call the counter-shock phase, where you start to know where everything is. You start to know who the different people in in the workplace are, and you start to become more comfortable in your environment. Then you get to this point where you start to perform well because you're comfortable in your environment. And you'll find that quite often people will get to this steady state where their performance uh, in their workplace matches their level of stress, which is normally towards their optimal point. So it's not so much that they're going to stress and burn out, but they're managing it quite well. The challenge then comes when there's a huge change. And that huge change, uh, for example, could be something like COVID it was a big change, very, very sudden that they had to adapt with. Now, if you've got somebody that's working at 100%, the steady state, and you add something on top of it, quite often they can rise to the occasion, as the old saying goes. Yes, they can withstand that increase of workload, but only for a short period of time. And what then tends to happen is it starts to have a fatiguing effect and everything starts to go downhill. And that's when that you start to get that concept of stress and burnout. And that's the key point here the burnout from this constant high yield flame of stress. And that is where we need to consider well, how do we then recover from that? And quite often you'll find people get sick of the workplace and they just want to leave. And, um, and then they do leave, but then six months later, they're, they're fine and they want to come back and they miss the workplace and they miss their friends. But what they really needed was a break. Um, but at that point in time, that's not what they see. They just see, the stress of their work environment and everything starts to stress them out because they are, they are, the cup is overflowing um, and anything else that comes in will be overflowing and often taken out of context. So you have this long-term creep effect. So that's very easy to understand when you add the sudden big dynamic stressor. But likewise, you'll get these slow gradual descent as well where it's the little things, the little things that add up.
1: Like the daily hassles,
2: the daily hassles, the lack of communication, right? By by f- constantly feeling like you're outside of the loop, not being told things by you know colleagues uh, or your senior staff. When you don't know, you become anxious because you don't know your environment. Why is something happening? Why aren't they doing this? Why isn't this happening? Why haven't they told me? So you start to worry about those little one percenters, and those one percenters gradually increase and increase until they become a big thing, and. You're, you're burnt out and you start to develop you know, levels of distrust and, and all those negative connotations of long-term exposure to a stressor.
0: I likened it um, in the early phases of when COVID was coming mm-hmm. in, in Australia. And there's this huge anticipatory anxiety because of what we were seeing overseas. And uh, nursing uh, from within felt like there was a big loss of agency 2020 was meant to be the um, World Health Organization International Year of the Nurse, and it's probably been one of the lower points for nursing worldwide. Um, for for a lot of people, and I guess the the general feeling seemed to be almost like this sense of being a non-cover operative, where you sent it, you, your mission, you still had mission clarity, but you're you're really unclear about what your resources were going to be, and the demand had increased massively but we had no agency over the decision-making. So, you're given PPE and told what you're going to wear without any consideration to what it was going to feel like to be in it for 12 hours. Your resources, you didn't get to see your friends and colleagues in the tea rooms anymore. Your resources were well and truly diminished in terms of visibly there compared to what the sense of demand was, which I think probably gives rise to that kind of chronic stress and why we're As a profession, as health professions, in a pretty rough state that needs years of recovery now.
2: Indeed, because again, one thing, one of the reasons I think that this mission critical teams and and you know work in healthcare are so uh, similar in many ways is uh, in healthcare you're outcome focused, patient health. That's your outcome. You know, do whatever you can to maximise the longevity of your patient. You've got an objective, your patient. Um, so you focus on that and when everything else falls apart and turns to custard around you, you're focusing on your patient. So, you know what, you've, you've now got all these challenges about, you know, putting on PPE before and after and half the PPE doesn't exist or it's the wrong size, or there's all these other problems. You've, you've lost resources. Um, but at the end of the day, you're still mission focused. So you do, you adapt, you improvise, you overcome, and you literally go into this, the stage of coping to make sure you can provide your, your, your patient with the best outcome. What then tends to happen is once you catch up, once there's this catch up and we start to get ahead of the game, so to speak, what tends to happen is all that sprinting that was done, the covering, uh, starts to then take its toll. And you'll see it quite often. We, We see it here, for example, we'll have a whole bunch of new students turn up and we teach, I teach the first subject, principles of physiotherapy, which goes for seven weeks straight. And literally we start teaching at eight in the morning and don't finish till five with the students. And it's a very intense period. And you'll find that probably about 50% of the staff that are involved in that subject, at the end of it, once they get through the other end, they'll come down with a cold or flu. The immune system is just destroyed. So this is the same sort of thing, but on a, a more holistic scale. Yes, you could get through it. Now that everything else has catched up, you know other things are now taking place to look after your patient outcome, and you start to ease off the pedal a little bit, what you realize is you don't just ease off. You literally just hit, hit, hit a wall and stop. Uh, and that recovery aspect is very, very important and how it's managed is very, very important because one of the key things associated with stress is trust. Trust in your organisation, trust in self. And if that trust is lost, that is a challenge.
1: So what you've just talked to us about is that chronic stress happens particularly when there's got to be lots of learning and demands at the same time and that it can be amplified when it's chronic over long periods of months. What What on earth does that mean for for a new nurse who started their nursing career in 2020, trying to adapt, trying to learn, uh, you know, chronic stress on top of that? Is there a way for them surviving this?
2: Yeah, (laughs) is there a way for them surviving this? Um, Particularly, I I do feel for our new graduates, uh, particularly, you know, 2019, 2020. We do know, for example, that quite often, particularly with some of the courses we run here, for example, our doctor of physiotherapy course, we push them hard for two years. Then they go out as new grads where they're trying to prove themselves for two to three years. So they're, in many ways, you're chronically pushing them for five years, and then you start to see they start to fatigue. So when you've now add COVID into the middle of that, sure, many of them are going to but going into this job going, wow, this is well and above what, what I thought it was, was going to be. Because you've got to remember, when they're undergoing their nursing, you know, nursing qualifications or physiotherapy qualifications, that isn't the real nursing job. That isn't the real physiotherapy job. That is the nursing job of training, of being under training. So when they then come to the job, there is still this great, no matter how good the clinical placements are in preparation, there is still this different shift in the way things are done. So they've got to adapt to that in a highly complex environment. So there are these challenges. I think we really need to focus our well-being strategies on those first two to three years to set up good habits. Then we need to maintain those habits because we tend to forget about them. So a classic example is you go to a, you know a health and wellness symposium, you know for three days, a self-help, self-coaching, and you walk out of there feeling pumped, I can do anything. And then after five days of going back to your normal life, it's like, oh uh, yeah, and you're back to normal. Mm. So we need to teach them strategies, but then we need to help manage them and re-encode them and reinforce them through their career. This is a, a career-long investment, and we need to remember that. So you've got two challenges. You've got your workforce coming in, right, that you've got to support, critical support. You've got to make feel confident that they can, they can talk to you, that they don't have to run at 100 miles an hour every day, all day, that they're allowed to make mistakes under guided control, and they learn from them because they are human. But then we've got to look at how do we maintain this workforce with these constant stresses, constant challenges coming through because the last thing you want is a nurse with 5, 10, 15 years to throw the towel in and leave because all that corporate knowledge, that critical knowledge gets lost. So it really is a long-term game and what you need at different stages of the career are different and the strategies they need are different because the stresses will be different.
1: That takes us so beautifully. Perfect segue into your number five. How on earth do we manage our stress in this ever-changing world? Sure. How
2: do you manage stress? Geez, that's the golden one, isn't it? Look, the reality is the way I try to focus on it, uh, I I really focus on the short term. I think if you save a lot of one percenters, it makes a big deal in the end. So how do I, rather than, you know, coming under excessive stress where it's detrimental and then trying to cope with it, when I start to feel stress in the, the moment, and I know my physiological signs, I know what's going to happen. My mouth is going to go dry. My heart rate's going to go up. I can feel my heart pounding in my chest. My respiratory rate goes up. How can I take control of that now? Rather than waiting, okay, now I've gone through the stressful environment. How do how I recover from it? How do I take control of it? Because remember, stress isn't necessarily bad. So if I'm going to be stressed, which you're going to be because it's a physiological response that you have no control over, how do I manage it and how do I optimize it? So uh, my mother, uh, uh, you know, one of my role models, she had this great saying, you know, it's all right to have butterflies. The aim is to make your butterflies fly in formation. So it's all right to feel this physiological stress, feel your heart rate go up. It's going to happen. Don't try and stop it. Let it happen. But then think, okay, so how can I control this environment? So we know some of the physiological responses that occur, so we know how we can actually combat and control some of those physiological responses. So as your breathing rate goes up and your heart rate goes up, one of the first things you can do is start to control your breathing. So there's a whole bunch of books out on box breathing and queer breathing and you know rhythmic breathing and all these different types of breathing. From the research from one of our PhD students, uh, Mark Stevenson, it really is simple, breathe. Breathe and breathe well. Take some slow, controlled, deep breaths. Because the last thing you want is people freaking out and being stressed that they're not using the right breathing technique to manage their stress, which is counterintuitive. So breathe. As soon as you start to feel your heart rate going up, your anxiety coming up, you see that email coming in from that one person that you know is going to be irksome, breathe. Step back, deep breaths. So the next part is the step back. We know there's peripheral narrowing. So you actually physically, because your body likes physical movement when you're under stress, take a step back. If you're sitting at work and you've got this email come in, push your chair back. Peripheral, get rid of the peripheral narrowing where you're just going to focus on every micro word and look for every hidden meaning. Push back, get some more uh, external sensory information coming in. So deep breaths, push back, step back. Once you've done that, I guess the next thing for me is consider the message and message framing. All right. What does this message mean and how am I going to interpret this message? Is, Is this a stress which is going to make me collapse? Or is this a stress that I can now use to my advantage to perform better? Um, you know, something comes in and you go, oh, geez, I don't know how to do this. I've, I've only ever done the skill once. Well, you know what? Something's coming. I've only done the skill once. Now I get to do it again. Yeah, It's all about how you frame your environment, which is so important. Um, you know, self-talk is, is, is really one of the important things for managing stress. Because if you think your stress is going to kill you, guess what? Your stress is going to kill you. If you think, hey, I can use the stress to improve my performance, you're going to use it to improve your performance.
1: I always laugh at healthcare professionals because when it's, you know, working in an ICU or an ED, which is my background, when it's crazy busy, everyone's like, oh, it's so stressful, it's terrible. And as soon as it's quiet, people are like, oh, this is so awful. You know, like, actually, lots of healthcare professionals, like I'm sure lots of emergency services... You know, there's part of us that we actually like that chaos, don't we? And oh, so we yeah. need to we need to be able to self talk and be, about it to go yippee, are you? Here we yeah. go, you yeah, know like,
2: exactly. Game on! I get to use my skills. This yeah. is great. This is a great day. Yeah. Um. You know, the thrive they they call it thrive in chaos. Mm. Um. Being comfortable in the uncomfortable because that's where those skill sets actually get to fulminate, Um. And they get a lot of fulfillment from that as well. Uh, let's face it, if you sit at the job, if you if if you're a healthcare professional and you're at work all day and you don't see a patient, how fulfilled are you going to be if you don't get to use your skills, as opposed to come out and go, you know what, I actually made a difference. You know, yes, I didn't cure the person, but their life is going to be better. They've got more opportunity, you know. Um, even if, if the, the worst happens and and you lose a patient and they know that you've assisted, you know, the family knows that you did everything you could. There is some comfort in that, as opposed to just sitting down and and, and absolutely doing nothing. Yeah, And if you're going to do nothing, yeah, you won't be stressed at all. But will you actually achieve anything? Mm. So that, I guess the final thing that I get them uh, to consider when they're in these chaotic environments is to how do you regain the initiative? Yeah, How do you get back on the front foot? Um, so a lot of things are coming in. You're starting to lose control. You're starting to feel your heart rate going up. The breathing isn't working because your heart rate's still going up. There's still complexity. How do you get in front of this? And it's not planning because planning will only take you up until a moment of chaos. Uh, classic, you know, the classic saying is "Only no plan is ever so good that it survives first contact with the enemy or uh, as Mike like, Tyson yeah. says, no plan is ever, you know, no boxing plan is ever so good until you get punched in the face. Yeah. Um. <laughs> once Once it happens, it happens. So how do you adapt? How do you get back in control of this environment? And it's all right to start feeling like, okay, this is getting on top of me because that's a great warning sign and understanding that within yourself that, okay, this is becoming too much. I need to take control here rather than just swept away by it. And having some of those strategies and some of those skills and having leaders or team leaders knowing how to regain that initiative and get in front of something is critical. And it could be a simple, okay, everybody stop. Let's go back around the table. Let's, you know, focus on what our primary directive is. What's our our big egg? What's our primary focus of this? Everybody, this is our task. Let's focus on that. Mm. Uh, It could be for the individual going, okay, this is chaotic. How do I get control? Let's start with a simple thing. Let me go back to the checklist. Right, i go back to the checklist. Okay, I'm happy with the checklist. Right, what's my next task? Yeah. And you start to break down challenges as opposed to just seeing it as, all,
0: as one big challenge. I think it's that difference between rising to the occasion versus shrinking the moment, which is that lovely shift I, I like. I'm a real mnemonic nerd. So to all try right. and encapsulate some of what you said, I'm going to draw on a friend's um, framework, Mike Laurier, who is a paramilitary rescue man with the US Air Force, then a flight paramedic, Then uh, now an emergency physician, and he's published on this uh, this mnemonic called "Beat the stressful, breathe, talk, see, focus." And we did that slightly out of order, but the breathing sort of those physiological resets. um, Mike comes in at talk was as second, so that sort of self-talk, positive self-talk, or reframing self-talk. The C stepping back to actually regain perspective to shift out of that kind of forced, overloaded, um, narrow focus. And then, like you said, the focus of how do we actually reacquaint with a new strategy that could be for smaller tasks being kind of um, a, a trained trigger phrase that we use for ourselves to reset as well. Um, and there's some pretty good evidence around attaching that kind of trained phrase to a certain physiological state that that can actually help um, in itself by getting, you, getting your um, physiological responses back in, in check. So beat, beat the stressful. Yeah, nice. Well done.
1: <laughs> and look, I, I just think for myself over the years, I think there was a developmental component to this. You know, you don't walk in to a hospital with these, you know, well, often that's very rare. You don't walk in with these skills. Over mm. time, you acquire them. So I think when you're a new employee, whatever you're doing in a hospital, you've got to expect that you're going to be a bit teary or a bit overwhelmed in the early days. You might need to go back to the books or back to learning to go back to the fundamentals to remind yourself of things. And then over time, you stop being so overwhelmed and your stress starts to respond differently.
2: Indeed. Um, and I think that's why the, we, we spoke about the, the long-term, you know, the chronicity of, of education. It's important because what is giving you stress will change. Yeah. So initially, the, the stress could be the lack of knowledge. Uh, but then the stress could be of later on in you know, family life. Stress is stress. The body doesn't go, oh, this is family stress and this is financial stress and you know, it's, your, your sales actually can capture that. It. It's the biological system's response to stress, any stress. Research has shown that, for example, sporting injuries in collegiate athletes goes up when exams are on Yeah. because stress is stress. So the stresses of your environment will change throughout your life. So you need to constantly be aware of that because some of your coping strategies, which did work, will now not work because they're not designed for that nature of, the, of stress, like financial stress, like you know, having teenagers, um, going or through newborns. my third, yeah. you know, or having <laughs> newborns. It's totally different things. Yeah. So you, they need constant education and reminding that, yes, the nature of your stress is, is going to change. And you know what? Again, stress is not bad. Stop treating stress like the enemy. Yeah. You know? How can you use your stress and how can you mitigate too much of it? It's like cake, mm. right? Stress is cake. A little bit of cake is great. You love good cake. You know what? You can take a little bit where you feel a little bit full. It's like, I've had too much cake. I might sneak in one more mouthful. But then if you eat the whole cake by yourself, well, that's going to be detrimental.
0: Yeah, right. Before we just go on to the summary of the five things, I, the reflection that landed on me there is this idea of um, our stress management or for one of our, better term, resilience, is a muscle that fatigues and we've got to train it, do some preconditioning work. There's some techniques that can help us in that moment of peak performance, but then there's a recovery period that then is followed by retraining again. So that's that constant cycle. And I think it's very easy to just get complacent because we are coping and to think that that's going to be an everlasting state.
2: Yeah. You know, that's a a great way of putting it. For those of you that love going to the gym and, and, and working out. The first time you go to the gym, you get you know, delayed onset muscle soreness and everything hurts, but after a while, it stops hurting until you do something new. So you go to your first Pilates. So you can be a marathon runner and a distance runner and do weights and you go to your first Pilates class and suddenly everything hurts again. And, and that's the same as stress. It's a different type of stress. It's a different load on the, the system. So the same sort of idea applies. You'll get used to one form, uh, but then there'll be other challenges that you've got to rise to and you develop resilience or physical capability to deal with.
1: All right. So I'm tasked with trying to summarize your five things, which has just been fantastic. Number one, which I just think is so important, not all stress is bad. There's a sweet spot, and we need a certain level of stress to perform at an optimum level. If you I always say if you you're saying bolt and you've got no stress, you were never gonna win the race. You've gotta have find your sweet spot and that will change over the course of your life. Number two, that your body. And your personality, you know, are naturally impacted by stress in different ways. So what stresses me may not stress you. And then when we feel those kind of physiological things occurring, the dry mouth, the heart pumping, you know, that's an important moment to stop and think, okay, something's going on. Be aware of that. Number three, that the tasks and environment um, for which you're operating in actually matter. So sometimes you know there are things that we can do if we've got you know you're really trying to concentrate and you've got three colleagues killing themselves laughing looking at a YouTube video it can be really distracting so it's important to go hey guys I hope you don't mind I just I really need to focus in on that or if there's a family member that's been screaming nonstop you know that it can take a load on the whole ward so perhaps turning that down a little bit number 4 is you talked about, you know, the effects of long-term stress and that nobody can endure ongoing high levels of stress indefinitely. It harms the body, uh, and we need to be aware of that. And I guess that's why it's important to take in your leave, to use your weekends or your days off wisely um, to, you know. Be mindful when you're swapping from night shifts out and back to day shifts, how important it is to actually rest the body and I guess nutrition and all of those things can actually impact um, your long-term stress. And number five is there are some very basic steps we can do to manage stress. We feel it coming on, breathe deeply, step back so we can get a broader picture of everything that's going on. Message framing, which in social work vibes is called reframing, where we, instead of going, oh God, here's a team leader that always stresses me out. Think, okay, this team leader is going to keep me on my toes today. How do I step up and, and perform to the best level? And regaining the initiative, which is essentially being able to say, okay, how do I get in front of this stress I I know this team leader really puts lots of pressure on me today, so I'm going to go back to my task list. I'm going to go back to uh, whatever my handover is, and I'm going to systematically work through that to take away some of that heavy cognitive load. Rob Orr, you're a legend. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today.
0: Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, it was really enjoyable chat. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital 5 Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community, and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen, and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things.